Hey there, sports fans, and welcome to a very special episode of Craig and Friends. Why is it special? Well, probably you already know because you see the name of the guest on this show. And my guest, one of my absolute heroes, who I'm now honored to call my friend, Paul Williams. You're familiar with the Rainbow Connection? Guess who wrote that, along with Kenny Asher, and the rest of the Muppet Movie soundtrack. Oh yes, Phantom of the Paradise, that's right. What else? Oh, Bugsy Malone, uh, Barbra Streisand's Evergreen, and 70% of the 1976 Star is Born album. You and Me Against the World, Rainy Days and Mondays, the brilliantly, deliberately bad songs from Ishtar. In addition to being one of the most inspirational and prolific people in the show business, he's an inspiration in so many walks of life. Recovery, advocacy, gratitude, you name it, he does it, and he does it well. We get into all of that and more, and we get into it after the theme song. Oh, and after this message. While you're listening, or right now, you don't need to pause it, just keep listening, because you can go while you're listening and leave a five-star review, subscribe if you haven't already. I know you've probably already done this, but this is a reminder for those who haven't. And of course, the five-star review is the most sophisticated review, and you are a true sophisticate. Reviews and star ratings, they're important because they help to get shows noticed. So, I'd like to ask you to do this not just for myself, but for every show that you enjoy. I'd also like to request that you go over to patreon.com slash craigandfriends, check out the reward tiers, more surprises coming in that regard, but for right now, head on over there, see which reward tier speaks best to you and your lifestyle, sign up, and set yourself free. And now, after the theme song, to quote Paul Williams, here comes inspiration. My guest, my friend, Paul Williams. Craig, have you watched the uh, the Loudermilk s- series at all? What's the? Uh, is it's, it? It's a guy day, who's or is this, it? it's a guy who's as as edgy as <laughs> as uh, Oscar Levant and and just kind of nasty and cranky and yeah. And he's a a, a, a drug counselor. I have fallen in love with the series. It's edgy. It's it's uh, politically incorrect. It's it's like life. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about life that sometimes isn't reflected in yeah. it's great. But it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's good. We see more and more. Did you see Tar? Pardon? Did you see the film Tar? No. It, that's a great one. It was yeah, one I, I have couldn't not, I have not yet. It's really great because there's a, especially as a musician, there's aspects to the film that deal with very unattractive aspects yeah. of being admired so greatly and it's interesting because it's in a classical world and because she's a lesbian you don't see i'm not that i think that this will be in the bernstein movie or bernstein but you're looking at it from a different view yeah yeah and then you see all these things because you know not to, not that star is born is a tired old trope but you know that the pop world looks like this yeah, not that everyone drives a motorcycle on it's stage a, like John Howard Norman. You know what it's like, and with Stars Born, that's like a normal Hollywood family. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh uh, yeah, it's you know, the measuring stick is is where are you, you know, on the billboard this week, you know. About that, yeah, you've been very uh, public about your struggles with substances and the blessing of recovery. 
Yeah, they weren't really struggles with, you know, with <laughs> the struggle was like trying to keep them hidden, you know, yeah. and, and finding them in strange cities, you know. Like you excelled at addiction. Yeah, that's what I you're did. Saying. You know, I, you know, it's like, you know, people talk about, you know, they, they, you know, when they got sober that they, you know, they had a tough time, like admitting they were an alcoholic. I was proud to be an alcoholic. My heroes were alcoholics, you know. <laughs> My neighbor was Robert Mitchum and, and trying to keep up with him put me in rehab twice. It was just like, you know. He was a big pot oh, guy, right? I, I love the bad boys. I love, you know, I love the... I love inappropriate, you know. Yeah. Inappropriate, especially when it's, you know, when it's like have a, a gateway into, into real wisdom and and character and just, you know, the the, uh, the you know the people like uh, Keenan Wynn. Keenan Wynn was mm-hmm. was my father, my second father-in-law. Oh, okay. And Keenan Wynn, I always wanted to, to meet Keenan Wynn. I yeah. think it's one of the reasons that we got married is because I just, <laughs> I, I love the idea of being Keenan Wynn's son-in-law. I yeah. was like, you know, oh my God. Because he and, and Lee Marvin would ride their, their motorcycles into a bar through the plate glass window. <laughs> and it was like normal, you know. Yeah, it was fine. Them. It was but, a bit you know, of, yeah. And I just, I just. There's something about, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. My dad died in a car wreck, a single car wreck when I was 13. And, uh, uh, but he, you know, he was kind of a sentimental drunk who just drank every day. And it, there wasn't a lot of contact, a lot of, you know, I, you know, I never spent any time that I can remember on his lap or anything. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some part of me that, that kind of had this idealized outlaw kind of a father figure that, that were the guys that I wanted to hang with, you know. Sure. And the one thing is he, he was really proud of me singing. Now, I was, when I was like seven or eight, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever like that, he'd get me up in the middle of the night to sing, so. Uh, That'd be at family parties or, or get-togethers or just by himself? You know, it'd be him and he, there was a guy named Ike McShane that he drank with all the time. And uh, I and and he'd get me up in the middle of the night to sing Danny Boy for Ike and Ike McShane hated me. It was like <laughs> I, the last thing, you know. And it's funny I talk about this when I when I you know when I speak I talk about my childhood and the fact that that my dad never noticed that Ike made the last thing Ike McShane wanted was to hear some gnome sing Danny Boy, you know. <laughs> you know and, uh, uh, something. Oh, pardon me, please go ahead. No, no, I just, it's like. just it's it's that. Uh, there's a certain level of 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 uh, inebriation where the uh, you know the perception gets really really the blinders are on you know and uh, and he was just you know I I don't you know I think he was so unaware of of the world around him. Your brother also had issues, right? Um. Both my brothers were, you know, are, are were recovering alcoholics, and before that, really good alcoholics, you know, unrecovered. Uh, <laughs> all, all three of you excelled. All is what three you're of saying. us, and yeah. my and my dad, and and uh, I mean, when I was like five or six at a company picnic, we'd get a little glass of beer, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, and, that's uh, uh, almost a, that was a standard kind of thing. It was yeah, like uh, exactly. some, the boys, a little glass of beer, you know, yeah. and uh, have a little of that, and and uh, but my younger brother was a songwriter. Mentor, oh, yes. Mentor Williams, exactly. And, uh, I mean, he started singing, and he lied to our mother and, and when he was, like, 16, 
said he was going to go to summer school in Red River, New Mexico. And so she let him go to Red River, New Mexico, but he was singing in a bar and living in the loft over the bar at 16. So he was just born to be, you know, I mean, he was just yeah. of the Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. And he wanted to be a songwriter, you know, like, uh, like his big brother. And mm-hmm. when he, when he came out to Hollywood, uh, it was like the early 70s, and I was re- doing really, really well. There's a story that I love telling about my brother. I had an office at, at A&M Records, and I was, almost everything was getting recorded, a lot of stuff on albums and B-sides and everything, mm-hmm. and I'd actually begun to have some hits. So my brother came out, and I got him a, like a little starter deal, at, at a publishing deal at, at, at A&M. Mm-hmm. You know, he listened to the radio all the time, and, you know, and, he, and he wrote kind of, you know, country rock sort of stuff, and, and uh, nobody would listen to anything. I mean, they, and they were good. Yeah. But there was something that was missing. So he was listening to, and he had a six-month deal, and he had an office two doors down from mine. And he, at the end of his six months, it was goodbye, Manor, because there wasn't anything happening there. Yeah. The Saturday before his deal was up, his deal was going to be up on Monday, the Saturday before... Uh, the deal was up. He went in to, to clean out his office, and uh, there was nobody on the lot. A and M Records is the old Chaplin lot, mm. you know. So it's this great old movie studio lot, and it's empty and pouring rain. It was just the guard was there, and nobody was around. He goes up to his office. He's sitting up there, and he's just like totally confused, you know. He's just like, Jesus, what have I got to do, you know? And uh, he knows all this stuff's coming to off the walls, you know, all the pictures and whatever. And yeah, he picks up a yellow pad and, and a pencil, and he writes, "Day after day, I'm more confused. Yet I look for the light through the pouring rain. You, you know, that's the game I hate to lose. And he had a big faith. I'm counting on you to carry me through. Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get a lot. He wrote, "Drift away." Yeah. From the center of his chest. There's the, I love telling this story because there's this huge lesson, in, I think, in it about authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, about just being as much, you know, uh, un, un, undisguised, uncamouflaged, uh, transparent, uh, dependent, ouch mommy songwriter, songwriter, as <laughs> is, is you are. And. And other people are going to hear the parts of themselves in the in the songs. It's just, it was a great lesson for me, you know, mm-hmm. with, from my little brother. He was well-named mentor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What was the age difference? Six years younger than me. He mm-hmm. passed away at 70. Uh, he got sober. He was, we had the same sober birthday, 12 years apart. I got sober uh, March 15th, 1990. He got sober March 15th, 2002. Uh, and we never knew that. He asked me well, about six months before I died. He said, wow. "What's your what's your birthday? Yeah. Your birthday?" And and I said, uh, oh, "March fifteenth. Uh, and he said, "No, no, that's mine. Well, what's yours?" I went, "What are you kidding?" So, <laughs> you know, fine. yeah. Funny. You would think that. No, no, no. You got it wrong. You're no. confused. <laughs> no. But uh, but you know, he quit drinking, and before he quit drinking, we were really really competitive. Mm-hmm. When he quit, when I when we were both you know sober, all of a sudden it was a level of brotherhood that we'd never really you know had experienced except as really little kids. 
Well, how would you characterize it, just uh, in general, the difference? Say again? Oh, sorry. How would you characterize the difference in pre-sober days and then after with, with your brother? This is my brother in pre-sober days. You know what? You're the best goddamn lyricist in America. You know, you're great. You're a great songwriter. You're maybe the best goddamn lyricist in America. He'd say that about 12 times, and then he'd yeah. say, who the hell do you think you are, the best goddamn lyricist in America? You're not. You know, <laughs> if, you know, you act like you are, but you're not. <laughs> how, how, uh, and I'm sure if he were here, he could do ver- imitations of me <laughs> being like the Pali Lama with all of his, you know, wisdom and blah, blah, blah. And, um, oh, and we, I mean, we physically fought a couple times. I mean, he never hit me, but he'd pick me up and I'd jump on his back and he'd throw me on the ground and go, stop it. But, but we just, we loved each other so much then. And then when, when, especially when he was, you know, when he knew he was dying, I mean, there was about a year there or two when, when he just was so absolutely overwhelmed with how beautiful life is. Wow. You know, I mean, he had a, a beautiful home in Taos, which he left to me and, and, uh, he'd be in his bed and he'd go, come, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look at this. Look at, I mean, the way the branch comes down, you know, it's, the, I mean, it's a perfect shot. The the branch is coming down out of the window and all. You can see a little bit of the fence behind it and then the mm-hmm. mountains. And it's just, Jesus, I just want you to see that. Isn't that amazing? And, and that, those leaves, you know, are gone and then they come back. Every, I mean, he was just, the, you know, the, the, the beauty and glory of life just really impressed him. It's really amazing to be in that state and be able to see all the beautiful things yeah Yeah. i'm wondering about when gratitude became something that you were not just aware of but able to embrace because it's very much a part of you and it's something that radiates from you and inspires myself and many other people yeah thank you yeah i love my life i love my life and i am grateful when i got sober um all of a sudden i just felt safe i felt comfortable in my own skin Mm mm-hmm uh, I didn't want anything. I mean, I just trusted. I mean, I just, and uh, and I, and you know, we're, Tracy Jackson and I wrote a book called Gratitude and Trust. And you had a know? podcast as well. Pardon? And your podcast you had as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. We did we did the, did the podcast as well, but but she heard me, you know, speak at a at a uh, recovery function of some sort, and mm-hmm. and uh, oh, I know what it was. It was the. The the uh, I think probably like the premiere or whatever of the documentary still alive. Oh yeah, and uh, I just I said something about how my choo choo has always run on the twin rails of gratitude and trust because I'm grateful for the life I have, uh, and I trust that no matter what I'll be I'll I'm gonna be all right I'm gonna be all right and I just you know and she walked up to me she said you know there's a book there mm. and. Uh, she said, you know, why, and one of the things that, that I've heard a lot is people will say, you know, why don't the rest of us have something like you guys, you know, in recovery have? Hmm. Why don't we have, you know, these, like you guys have the 12 steps? And, uh, and she's, you know, like there's probably an entire audience of people that have, you know, life-limiting habits sure. that they'd like to get rid of. And I think there's a book there, and we should write it together. And so she was just, you know so disciplined and so bright we'd been friends forever you know 
Well, actually, we we had not been friends forever. We met back in the 70s or maybe 81 or something. And uh, I was I was loaded out of my brains. It was actually at Robert Mitchum's bedroom. She came in and <laughs> said, I'm a big fan. And I said something really rude about it. I hope it, you know, I hope it uh, improves your sex life or whatever. And my music, but I, I didn't say it nearly as gently as that, you know. And yeah. she kind of spun on her heels and went so much for meeting your heroes, you know. Yeah. And I always said she walked out of the room a big Neil Diamond fan. <laughs> and, uh, but I saw her when I like at uh, in New York when I was about ten years sober, or maybe a little more. And uh, she said, "You're just to- like you're totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, you're what I was hoping. You know that you 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 might have been like when I met you." And I was no, I was all I wanted to do was get high with Bob. You know, and and. Uh, who, who always called me a doughboy? He go, you know, and he, and he always smoked great grass, which would cripple me. He'd go, you know, <laughs> hey, doughboy, this shit's no good, but you might like it. And I go, I go, I, I, I go try, no, you'll like it. It's not bad. It's nothing. It's like you know, seven up, you know. And I then all of a sudden I would I'd be close to crying because I knew I was dying. <laughs> then he'd toss me the keys and he'd go, you know what, you're you're gonna have to drive. I'm really fucked up. <laughs> and uh, which of course he was not. And when I would go, yeah, but I can't. They didn't laugh at me. <laughs> no, been, you're oh, fine. I've been laughed at by the best. <laughs> <laughs> it, that makes me wonder about uh, childhood and how that impacted your later use of substances because. In your music, uh, in even the the rock stuff in Phantom of the Paradise, there's a acuity in seeing the human condition, and uh, obviously in songs like uh, "You and Me Against the World" and uh, "Let Me Be the One," etc., and all the songs of of that ilk, there's a yearning, there's uh, a wisdom as well, even when you were very young. So. I get the sense that as being kind of an outsider, you saw quite a bit. Yeah. It's interesting because I hear stuff in the songs and, and you know, at, at this point in my life, there's a guy that, that, I, that is a great friend and teacher who is in, in, the, in the program and, and he's written a book called The White Man Red Road. He's really cleaved to and always felt connected to the... the uh, you know the the Native American culture and and the teachings and the and the rituals and all. Mm-hmm. And he talks about being a good hollow bone. Huh. You know that you know that at, at our best we get out of the way and let spirit pass through us and all. And that's what writing has always felt like to me, mm-hmm. especially after I got sober. Yeah, it's just that you know that that uh, and so the the the. the the voice that is that is making its way to the page, you know, the the the, the content. Uh, some of the songs feel so much smarter than I that I was, or or <laughs> or, or, or 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 more, or you know, maybe not more caring, but but able to say, you know. I, I don't know. It's it's an absolute mystery. I know that when I got sober and I started writing. The the first song for the Muppet Christmas Carol was Scrooge, and I wrote it in an entirely different way. I literally prayed about it. I said, "Okay, I read this, 
And this is a story that I tell a lot because it's the best example I can get of of the process for me. Yeah. Is that, you know, I'd read the original book of, of you know, of Christmas Carol mm-hmm. Dickens. I read the script and uh, Jerry Jill's script and, and all, and I knew what the scenes were about and what, what was required. But I literally, the day that I wrote the first song, Scrooge, I went out and I sat out. T- I took a, a Lawrence Block novel and uh, and a little pan recorder and uh, went out into uh, the park in, in Brentwood. I was living uh, with with my girlfriend at the time out there, and uh, close to the park. I went out and I sat down and I, and I said to the you know I basically prayed about it. It was like you know. This, you know what this needs to be. Let me know when you have an idea, and, <laughs> and I'll be right here. And I started reading the Lawrence Block novel. I read like three, maybe three pages, and I put it down. And I went, okay. It starts with Scrooge's feet. A door opens. You just see his feet, and he's walking along. But a bump, 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 and he's walking. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. And and it just, it rolled on. There goes Mr. Humbug. There was Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Probably up to about there, it just came out of me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you guys are really good. <laughs> you know, that's really good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but it was, but it's what I call creative surrender. Mm-hmm. That, that I got sober when I absolutely gave up fighting alcohol and went, you know, you win alcohol. I am just going to, I'm, I am now opening up my heart and my life and, and, and I, I, you know, and I, I make this choice, you know, I, I turn over my will and my life to the care of, of my higher power. What was the, the big amigo? <laughs> the, I love how you say the big amigo, especially because it's very relatable to people who maybe don't have uh, the yeah. same relationship to spirituality or religion. Uh, but the process, I'm, I'm really curious about, or how long you feel it took between um, 1990 and when you really locked in as a daily practice. So, for instance, I was diagnosed bipolar last year. Finally, and uh, yay! Yes, right, exactly. Yeah. It's something oh, it's to fabulous. celebrate. It is, and now I have the proper medication instead of self-medicating, which <laughs> we're all yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. in this room is familiar with. So, uh, I've also started uh, cognitive behavioral therapy because Perfect. the flood of thoughts, right? And you s- stop it and try to redirect it, but I'm still early in the process, and they they always say, "Well, it's going to get easier," and you kind of have to have the faith. Yeah. that it will and in yourself as well and remind yourself so i'm curious for you what that was like the sort of the, the getting adapting rather well the first thing is is that it was just great relief that i was you know you know i was no longer in charge of of the, uni- the universe <laughs> you know, exactly and also i didn't have to lie i mean i god I, I was a chronic and habitual liar trying to hide my drugs and 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 the thing is that with like with cocaine, you know, I mean, alcohol made me feel big enough to deal with the rest of the world. Cocaine made me feel like I could shoot basketball for money. Is the is the bumper sticker joke? 
but the fact is that it did you know, lift me up into a place of such confidence yeah. that I would try anything. And the thing is that when I believed I could do things and I got the chance to do it, I did, I did them. And some mm-hmm. of them I did well. Uh, well, most of them. Well, we'll get to that. Though. Well, it, it was really interesting because, and after the early success of the '70s, you jump into the '80s, and I got to a place where I was really impressed with the intellect of what I was writing. So I wrote these brilliant lyrics that are in a drawer somewhere. You know, picture a diamond in the dark without the light, it cannot shine. If you need words to know. Your mind, what must my silence do? Oh my God, this is fantastic! This, I yeah. didn't want to leave the room because I'd miss what I was writing, you know. And uh, but there's no, there's no me in there, you know. I wrote, well, I joke that I, I wrote codependent anthems, but what I really wrote was about the need to be loved. I want to be yeah. held, pick me up and love me songs. Yeah, and people feel that, you know. And uh, I mean, the style of music changes and then it goes around and the genres are kind of getting together and moving around and all. And I joke that I, I want to write with the guys, you know, that, that scare me. I want, you know, I want to write, you know, in places that I've never gone before. So but but almost immediately there, there are two things that jumped out at me. First of all, that no is a gift that mm. when I, you know, and. You know, when I didn't get what I wanted, which was to be an actor, I wound up, you know, just picked up a little guitar and started looking for, I mean, it became like journaling. It became like a diary, just putting out my feelings and all. Uh, And I think at this point in my life, I would take it to the next step, which is I I do my best work when I'm I'm lost. Mm. I mean, when I have no ideas, when I, I mean, if, if you ask me to write about something, uh, you know, pick a subject, anything, you know, whatever, uh, and I don't have a clue, I'm probably going to come up with the, the, the because I'm, I'm going to get out of the way as this enters, you know. There's a great line that Bowie said, and I might be paraphrasing, but he said, when you start to feel comfortable, it, say in the water, just go a little bit so your feet are kind of almost not touching uh-huh. and maybe push a step past that because yeah. otherwise you, you sort of stay in stasis. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever find yourself um, in the 70s? Because you had, as you said, you if there was an opportunity to do something, you did it. And it's remarkable that, that someone uh, such as yourself was so adept at being uh, funny on the Carson show, hosting shows, um, being a wit and being a brilliant songwriter and being able to do Phantom of the Paradise, which is totally different than the previous material and Bugsy Malone, these outside things. So you had this amazing uh, ability and of course acting continued and uh, I'm curious about whether or not you took all of that for granted and sort of had a glibness about it towards the end of the addiction. I think, you know what I felt like? I felt like I was finally, you know, it was, I was one of the guys. I didn't feel like a star. I never felt like I had fans. I always felt like I had friends. Yeah. And, uh, I was generally, I mean, I was always right at the edge of inappropriate, you know. <laughs> That's a good album title. And uh, it, it was, <laughs> and, uh, and it just, that seemed to get the best response, so I didn't worry about it, you know. Yeah. Um, if I thought something, I said it, I mean, I just didn't edit, you know. 
and uh, the more you know I just uh, there was I think that's one of the reasons the Carson you know br- mm-hmm. had me back so many times yeah know, the, the roughly I, 50 times is that I did right? 40 I think 48 tonight shows mm-hmm. and uh, but the uh, yeah I, I don't know you know the 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 I have the older I get, the less and less and less I have to do with why things worked. Or you know, I know that that when I was in high school, I used to watch. I talked about Oscar Levant earlier. Oscar, Levant, I don't know if you know who Oscar Levant was. Oscar Levant was a piano player who mm-hmm. was a, a, a terrible addict. Uh, he, you know, he was he was a, a a classical pianist and composer who believed there was only one really genius. Uh, in in the world of music in in a, in a lifetime, and that it was Gershwin. So he, all he did was, he was a, a student of. A, uh, he played Gershwin. It was like, and he he had this blinking. Eye. If, you may, if you ever saw a movie like uh, An American in Paris, he's the guy that's like that that's always smoking and whatever. And he was, and he I had a local television show, and he would get furious with people and scream, <laughs> and they'd have to cut to a commercial. And he'd come back and he'd be sitting on his piano stool with some. You know, a, a grip who dropped him, uh, something made noise while he was playing piano, and uh, and his humor was, you know, like Dorothy Parker. It was just quick and funny, and and and, and I and I always loved that. There's a, a kind of a brokenness that that is in some talent, like Montgomery Clift and. and hmm. Spencer Tracy are, are my two favorite actors from those era, those days, and they're totally different. But the one that just that just I go, is that broken? Billy Bob Thornton. Sure. Billy Bob has that just that he's just there in there with himself, and God yeah. knows what he's thinking, and it's just it's brilliant. I mean, and you work with him on Goliath. On the Goliath for two years, yeah. Mm. yeah that's why I brought him up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, came to mind rather. He's, he is fascinating. Uh, and with your uh, performances, of course, uh, you're gleefully evil, I believe, as you put it, uh, Swan. Also, another one, Stone Cold Dead. I kind of wish the movie was more about your character because you were really, really sinister in that. And uh, that seems like it was a fun area to play in. You know what I have? I it's amazing how miscast I have been, and it's like I never got to the place where I could see myself as looking like enough of an, an adult to be playing that role. You know, it's like I look at you know, in Stone Cold Dead, or I think it was called the Sin Sniper at one point. I mean, like I'm supposed to be like the head of ball prostitution in Toronto. You know, <laughs> yeah. And I look like I'm, you know, I look like, you know, I joked I look like Haley Mills in those days. Well, Haley Mills, maybe I I don't think so, but with a very sour face, which is very imposing. But it was just, it's like, and also, sour expression. Forgive me. You talk about Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, there was nothing in the music that I was writing. You know, Carpenter, Three Dog Night. uh, You know. This very kind of safe, middle of the road, you know, easy listening music that I was writing. That said, I would be right to to write the, the music of the spheres and mm-hmm. like, and all these different kinds of of you know of, of rock and roll. Every you know from from nostalgic you know fifties you know classic rock to you know like doo wop to uh, to Beach Boys to all the all this stuff to the latest and, in the glam. 
that was going on. The Which Alice, one? Uh, the, to the latest of glam, the Alice Cooper-ish yeah, yeah. Uh, material. So it was like, it was, it, yeah, to, to, you know, hardcore glam rock like Life at Last for Beef, you know. <laughs> Salutation from the other side. I could see it was like, I and I used my road band, and it was just, it was a chance to satirize, you know, the the all the different kinds of music that I love, but I, I never, never, I mean, why would Brian De Palma think that Paul Williams was the right guy to write that? You know, he should have gone to, you know, Led Zeppelin or, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he clearly is a extraordinary spotter of who's the right person for the yeah. job at hand. Yeah. I mean, Jessica Harper's first film, so therefore, I mean, and she's just so incredible oh in that. God. And she related a story on the show about the audition process and then going to audition for you and you asked her to sing a song that you've mentioned many times having a distinct influence on yeah. Old Souls, uh, yeah. Superstar by the Carpenters. Yeah, exactly. And you know what was interesting is, and I I did see that one. Oh, and I just love her. I mean, I I mean, it's just she's a stunning talent, yeah. you know. And when uh, the scene on the stairs in the movie, yes, is is pretty much you know kind of right out of what happened. We were, uh, Brian and I went back to New York to to audition, you know, so actors. And so she's coming in, and and I I'm, I walk into the like the outer office where you know I forget even, I don't even remember where we did did the auditions, but but she's singing to herself long ago and oh so far away, I fell in love with you before the second show, and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm just like you know, I don't think I said anything to her, but just like I'm you know, or maybe you know. Yeah, then I went inside, and then she came in to sing it for me, and she went, long ago, <laughs> and also, and I went, you know, no, they were singing like you were outside to yourself. She sang it like that, and we just went, oh, my God, you know. She's just, you know, I mean, and also the other ones she sings, you know, caught up in your wheeling, dealing, you got no time left for simple. She just, you know, she's just, I think she could, you know, and, and, it's interesting because, you know, I just, I think that, that her recording of, of Old Souls, you know, she, I mean, it, it hasn't been a hit, it was, you know, but it should have been, and, it, and it, I, I don't think anybody could ever sing it better, you know. Mm, I love your version, though. Thank you. As well, yeah. I, I always like, oh, and I have to mention... Waking Up Alone, I, I love both versions, but I wish that the 77 version was available digitally. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't... God, yeah. Well, yeah, that was Michael James Jackson who produced both of those. And it's only the two of you on that track, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's Michael playing all the stuff. Michael, Michael. Well, no, it's no, no. It's oh no, it's 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 the section. It's oh Russ Conkel, oh, Craig wow. Durge, uh, uh David Spinoza on guitar. I mean, it's 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 James Taylor's band, right? There's a new documentary on that. Documentary. Can't wait to see that. Those are the guys. Yeah. And I mean, like Bugsy Malone and Phantom of the Paradise. Those were, 
Those were all my road bands. Gary Malibur. Gary Malibur. Yeah, you know, you know. (laughs) Caswell. Was he with you at that point? Oh, yeah. Chris Caswell. We're still, you know, working together. He's the one, you know, he was, I don't know if you know the story about him on Tron. No. Okay, he with with Daft Punk. Oh, right. Caz's plane is brought in to play some, some keyboard overdubs for Tron. Yeah, and so he's there, and he's really playing. And he's looking at the, you know, the, the the scene, whatever, and doing some stuff, getting playback. And then he hears about Jean Lafont. On the phone, they say, "I don't want to find out your problems." And he's going, "Jean Lafont, they say, 'Le putain, petit le problems.'" And he goes. Did you just say Paul Williams? And he, they said, yes, we don't know where the, we want to find him. And he went, I just came <laughs> off the road with him in Melissa Manchester. They didn't he know? Said, you know that no, they he didn't was... know. You know. So he said, you don't know. So she, he said, I just, I've been on the road for the last month with him. We've been working together since 1977. They went, fantastic. <laughs> so they came to, to see me. And, yeah. And I wound up, you know, writing lyrics to two of the songs and singing on the album. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's, this is Kaz. This is Kaz is just listening and hearing in that, you know, neither one of us speak French. <laughs> but hearing my name and, and with, you know, well, thanks for the job, Kaz. And Kaz was also, was he the first one or was he one of the major ones to sort of pull you aside and say... You got a problem, or however well, he, he put it. He was the only one. The only one. Except for my girlfriend, and I, I tried to get sober for her, and that didn't work. Then I tried to get sober for me, and it worked. But, but Kaz, Kaz said to me, you know, that he said, uh, I got to tell you, he said, I'm, I'm really worried about you. I, yeah. I'm, I, with the drugs and, and, and the booze, he said, it's just, he said, I'm really worried. And I said, you're fired. It was that quick. I said, yeah, I, I said, you're fired. Wow. I, I said, that's none of your business. And, of course, when I got sober, there was one person I needed to go see really, quick, <laughs> really quickly, you know. And, you know, I didn't really see him really quickly. I, I, I did not chase music when I, or acting or any of it when I got sober. All I wanted to do, I went to UCLA and got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor, and I entered the Pali Lama period of my <laughs> life. You know, Come touch the hem, I will strike you sober. That's all I wanted to do. Did you have an association with when I do this, this might lead to the old ways? Did you have a a tie in your mind to music and the substance use? No, No, not at all. Okay. No, but you know, what's interesting, first of all, is the way I got sober was somebody, I had a a total meltdown in in Oklahoma City and and a psychotic meltdown. I was tortured by a monster that nobody could see but me cause for like 40 minutes. It's hard to do I when mean, that happens because yeah, no one just, can uh, help step in. Absolutely <laughs> nuts. And uh, I'd been up probably three days and nights, you know, and with blow, doing blow and drinking and, and a little bit of Annabee's trying to show the girlfriend that I wasn't really drinking or using, which was, of course, lying through my teeth. But the, there was the, the the it was a gig in Oklahoma City, and the guy the 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 promoter uh, was walking walking down the hallway of the hotel with me, and it was one of those things where he said it was like somebody just threw you against the wall. I was throwing down escalator stairs, but wow. there's no escalator in that building. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so we canceled the gig. 
till the next day. I did it, and I told them that I had a reaction to my meds. Which is which essentially true. true. <laughs> Absolutely true. And you can appreciate that now yeah. in a way that is even more succinct. Absolutely. And, and f- filled with gratitude. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. But I came back. I drank on the plane coming home. I called my dealer the minute I hit the ground and all. And Friday night, in a blackout, I called a doctor. Wow. And he called me the next day and he said, uh, I found a place for you to go to treatment. I said, somebody's been using my body again. What's going on? <laughs> Which monster called you? Because there was one in Oklahoma that was very scary. <laughs> well, what happened that, that was most interesting about all this is that uh, he said, well, you said to me last night you didn't want to drive drunk with your kids in the car anymore like your dad did. Wow. And something there's something connected, and I, and, and I had no intention of getting sober. And all of a sudden I went, you know what, let's do it. And I did it 10 years later. Ten years later, I'm in I'm in Nashville. Went to Nashville to write. I was asked to speak at the at the the uh, at the jail, and went and I told my story at the jail. Did what we call H and I, you know, uh, hospitals and institutions. Go back to the hotel. Hotel lobby is crowded to the max with all these guys that are like wearing badges. It's uh, their promoters are. Uh, it's it's a big, some sort of a conference. Uh huh. Anyway, I go up to my room and and uh, my and my my key won't work. My magnetic key doesn't work for the third night in a row. And I'm like, <laughs> God damn it! I go downstairs and I say, and I go through this crowd, and I go up to the kid behind the counter and I'm I'm nice. I've learned restraint of pen and tongue, and I say, Why should I have to come down here three nights in a row with and there's a tap on my shoulder? And I turn around. And there's a guy standing there, and he says, Look, I. Uh, I don't want to bother you. I just want to say hi. I I booked you mm-hmm. uh, ten years ago, and I went and I looked and it's got his na- name and it says Oklahoma City. Oh wow! Went, oh my God! Were you the guy when I lick me, lick me when I did my Linda Blair you know, <laughs> right. spinning my head around? He said, "Yeah, that was me." And I was like, "Oh my God!" Well, and then I'm and then I well I'm ten years sober and uh. uh I'm a certified drug and alcohol counselor, blah, 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 Polly. They just spoke at the jail, blah, blah, Polly, this, blah, blah, Polly, that, just massively blurting everything I can see to impress him out. And he said, yeah, I heard in the rooms you were sober, which is, and I said to him, you're a friend of Bill. And he said, yeah, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a chip for 17 years. Wow. So he had seven years when that happened. Yeah, so he knew what was going on. Yeah. Like, I mean, clearly, maybe other people not skilled in the art would, but he, he could see it could show, where yeah, you were oh, on the yeah. stage. Well, and I said, well, you know, I, I was bad. He said, I thought you were dying. He said, I literally thought you were dying. I didn't know you'd, if you'd make it home on the plane. Wow. And he said, um, I said, what'd you do? He said, I called my sponsor. And I said, yeah, yeah. What'd your sponsor do? And he said, he hung up on me. And I went, he what? He said, he hung up on me. I said, why? He said, so he could start making calls, which is exactly what I did. Oh, wow. And we put together a prayer circle, Mm -hmm. praying for you in Oklahoma City. And about four nights later, in a blackout, I called a doctor. And to me, there's there's not a doubt in my mind that my calling that, that doctor is not connected with the prayers, you know. It's just that that energy 
I mean, I don't know what my higher power is. But I don't know what electricity is, but I, or how <laughs> it works. But that, I yeah. use it. I flip a switch and it lights up my room. You know, yeah. but yeah, and that's and that's the whole deal there. That that prayer works, and it got to me, and I made the call, and I've been sober since, and it's just the greatest gift I've ever been given, and I had nothing to do with it. And you had tried once before right and yeah i did yeah i stayed sober for seven months and i went to jamaica and stayed up all night instead of working on a musical i was supposed to be writing i wrote a song that i thought have you heard this song the story before i do know this story <laughs> yeah. and i think it's i think it's an important it's one an i know important it's in the documentary story. but it I'm is in, important i'm in ocho rios jamaica working on a on a, a musical called the secret life of queen victoria and I stay up all night trying to write that one. I'm seven months without a drink, seven months without a toot, no program. I'm not oh. in any 12-step program. I am white-knuckling it. I am in charge of my life, and I'm just fine. I'm just fine, you know, grinding my teeth. You can hear it in the next county, you know. Yeah. And, but I stay up all night, and I write this song that I think if I, because if I can write, you know, God, Craig, if I can get one more hit, I'm going to get it all back and everything will be just fine. And I haven't had a drink in seven months. I stay <laughs> up all night and I, I'm writing and I write something that I think is just like, oh, my God, this is a smash. It's a smash. And I get some sleep and I get up around one or something. I go out by the pool. I sit down there and I and it's like. I take a deep breath and I listen to to I you know hit the the recorder and and listen to what I took my place beside you girl I mean I don't, I don't remember I don't remember what the the words were but I remember the melody because I'm going I did a did a bit I took my place and I realized that that I had rewritten Old Little Town of Bethlehem <laughs> Old Little Town of Bethlehem I took my place beside you know. And that is I a said, smash, a little town. Oh, it was, a, it was, a, and it was, a, and it would not have been a smash under. No, any I mean, no little town of Bethlehem. It was yeah. the first, but you don't want to steal from the big amigo, you know. That's so true. it's like, oh Jesus, I was, I mean, oh Jesus, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, so, sorry, uh, sorry. At that moment, exact moment, uh, the house boy or whatever his title was, in a white jacket with the tray and the ice and the rum and everything, asked me if I wanted a rum and coke, and I said I would like one. One rum and coke, one light, easy rum and coke. I'm the Paul Williams. I can. I've got enough willpower to have one. And I had that one at two o'clock in the afternoon. At two o'clock in the morning, I was at Bob Marley's grave, explaining reggae to a lot of black people I didn't know. You know, just <laughs> off and running, out of my mind. You know. Would this be when the uh, lying started, or was this? Something that you were doing before. Well, What's you it? said actually. Sorry, you did say. Uh, you said in the Oklahoma City uh, incident that the aunt abuse and telling the yeah, girlfriend yeah, and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. But did, did but the, the, the that that whole thing? Because I was off and running for after the seven months of white knuckling. I did like about two years, but I was back drinking and it just got worse and worse and worse. And uh, and wait a minute, yeah. And then and then I went at at the at the worst of the worst was when I went to to Oklahoma City and did the gig, came home, they they prayed for me, I went to treatment. Oh, sorry, yeah, I flipped it. became the, the Pali Lama. Right. <laughs> I, I, read, I read a really yeah, fascinating yeah. thing. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, it's just, that's that's the story. You know, it's just, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. And I just have never, I, I you know, I, I found my tribe. 
There's a fascinating uh, admission from Pete Townsend in his book uh, about his relapse, which is a very similar story. I can do control drinking is what he Oh, yeah, thought. yeah, exactly. I just launched Tommy on Broadway. I'm doing fine. And then he said he slept next to a dumpster at one point. But he said that first time he had a glass of champagne or something in a similar way. This is the right setting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on, I got to be what a part of this. What possibly hurt? Well, everybody. <laughs> right. And he said something uh, that you rarely hear from people. Instead of it was, obviously those things are bad. But he, he said he got on his knees in his hotel room, thanking God for helping him find the thing that gave him relief again. Wow. Isn't that an amazingly candid... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, you know, because it just, it's... If, if, if you're not sure you're an alcoholic or if you haven't had that, that spiritual awakening, if you hadn't had that gift of just like, you know, for me it was waking up, you know, after I was medically detoxed, Oh, wow. And, you know, and my hand didn't hurt because I used to sleep holding a two-gram bottle, squeezing it, really, with a, uh, what we called a bullet on top. Oh, okay. Easy access. Uh, yeah. Have a toot, get up, pee. The toot was so bad that I could go back to sleep for another a half an hour or so, whatever. I slept very, very little and all. But but it's just to to all of us the thing is that when you'd wait i'd wake up i thought everybody had a glass of vodka in the shower in the morning if i took a shower because it got so bad that i you know it's just but to when when you wake up and the cravings are gone mm -hmm. and they were gone and you're sitting down with people and they're telling their stories and the sudden they sound like you <laughs> you tell and you share with them something terrible you did and they laugh and they go yeah me too you go it's like oh home i'm home what's know? the line about you like your secrets i can't remember the Only exact as sick as our secrets exactly and because we all think oh that's terrible and that's yeah. just me or I have this deficiency where I think about all these negative versions of or think bad things about my loved ones or whatever, intrusive thoughts, whatever you want to call them. And you then find out at a certain point, ideally, that these are shared yeah. problems. There was no shame for me yeah. in, in my recovery. There was no, it's like, there's a lot of things that, that were worthy of my shame. Mm-hmm. But what was larger than my shame was was my ability to to fix whatever I could, and and I, I nothing made me feel as good as basically this whole love and service thing. And the thing is, they say you know like whatever you know we get to keep the miracle by giving it away is the yeah. way I describe it. And the thing is that that's. You know, it's like you're going, oh, I'm going to be of service. That's work. It's not work. What it is is it's like it's it's a real high. I mean, it's like you know, oh, you want a 12-step call with somebody. It's like we were amazing. We were like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, we're talking we're talking build a statue. We were great. <laughs> and it just, you know, because the ego embraces this, the, just the pure joy of doing the right thing and being actually helpful instead of in the way you know i've never felt more useful mm -hmm. in my life and that's an that's a remarkable high for somebody who just keeps kind of thinking they're fabulous and 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 somewhere back inside there they're going when are they gonna when am i gonna get caught
when are they going to realize that <clears throat> you know that that I'm a um imposter? Uh, yeah, I'm an imposter. Yeah. And I'm, who told you? <laughs> I got the dossier on you. Yeah, yeah. I read the secret code in the lyrics. There's yeah. lyric sheets in there. Yeah. In regards to fixing stuff, uh, you had uh, whether I don't know how would you describe this? The a falling out with Barbara Streisand after winning the Academy Award for Evergreen, I, and writing most of the I'd say like half of Star Is Born soundtrack, of Some, which I have yeah, to like seven songs. Well, and by the way, Hellacious Acres it is a favorite. But also, I want I really wanted to tell you this when I, I've I've had obviously depressive episodes, severe ones, and. One of the songs that, I mean, there's a number of your songs that have lifted me up and continue to, but um, watch, and I'm forgetting the watch name of it. Watch closely now. What, sorry, thank you. Watch closely now. A couple times on repeat was the thing that helped me to, you know, look in the mirror and sort of charge myself up and then get ready to dive back into whatever it was. So I wanted to, I wanted to tell you that. It's, it was an amazing thing. You know, I got a phone call from Barbara, and, and it was interesting. I was getting fitted for a tuxedo. And my my wife, my first wife, Katie, I'm oh, sorry, my my first wife, Katie. Oh, no, no, it's you know, okay. Believe me. Uh, I'm the same. You see me with my hands. My first wife, Katie, came into the room and went, they went uh, it's Barbara Streisand. <laughs> she wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, my God, Barbara Streisand. Hello. And I, <laughs> Like I get a call from Barbara Streisand every day. <laughs> and there was a song I'd written with Kenny Asher called You and Me Against the World. Mm. And she said, we're doing The Stars Born, Chris Christopherson and myself. And do you know the movie? I said, oh, yeah, I, you know, absolutely. Uh, and she said, there's a scene in the movie where he, he writes a song that that I want to sing at the end of the movie. Yeah. It's a song that I discover after he's died, but like that and all. And I would like something like you and me against the world. And w that's what she said. What I heard was, I'd like you to write all the songs for Stars Born. <laughs> because I was just, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, my ego was listening, you know, but and my hearing's always been, you know, trashy. I wear hearing aids, and that helps a little bit. It's The Big Amigo has a great sense of humor. I finally learned <laughs> to listen, and now I can't hear. But... So, I, I, you know, she sent me a script, and I just wrote down a lot of ideas about what the songs would be about and where they'd go and stuff like that. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I wish I remembered it well enough to say with, with absolute uh, certainty that I kind of went through there and made, you know, made notes about what the song like that. I think that a lot of it was off the top of my head or whatever, but... but uh, I went out to Malibu to meet with her and John Peters, and John Peters and 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 Barbara looked at me kind of like like they were sort of stunned, and uh, asked if I would step out and give them a moment alone. And and then like I went out, and they came and had me come back in, and they, and Peters said, "You're uh, you're not intimidated by this, are you?" And I'm sure I was, you know. I mean, but I was probably you know fried just enough to where I didn't have to look at it. You know, I could keep it bubbling under the surface. But I also knew that, I, I mean, I, I, I could do this. Yeah. And I said, I wrote, the song you like is I wrote with Kenny Asher. And I had, you know, I just, I, I had just done the Muppet movie with Kenny. 
You know, so not no, wait, bad. Well, no, no, wait, no, I just, <laughs> I turned around, no, I had not done the moment. What was I? I had just been written almost all of a, a musical about Dorothy Parker with Kenny. Oh, wow. So we're like really into a, we're, we're you know, like we're into a, that, you know, a, 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 creatively like he farts and I feel better. We are, <laughs> we are tight and, yeah. and making sense to each other and we're on fire. I mean, our collaboration is on fire. Yeah. And I suggested Kenny to to Barbara, and it was the smartest thing I ever did because he came in and he and he I mean he brought the and, and then later on with the Muppet movie too I I, I was after I did you know, the one other thing with anyway I, I I'm I'm getting ahead of myself but so it was an interesting there were like I think seven maybe 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 two months before they start shooting. And uh, the first things we were going to be shooting was all of Chris's stuff. Because you so wrote I the kept... bulk of Chris's songs. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I wrote, you know, uh, Watch Closely Now. Well, Kenny and I wrote Watch Closely Now, Hellacious Acres. Uh, I wrote, uh, we wrote, for her, we wrote Woman in the Moon uh, with One More Look at You. Excuse me, with One More Look at You. Yeah, with One More Look at You. Uh, I wrote Evergreen with her. Mm-hmm. I wrote... Uh, Hellacious Acres, and when there was one other one in there as well. Uh, everything I wrote with. Oh yeah, yeah. With, with Rupert Holmes. But it was like, you know, she's going through the. She was very hands-on about, you know, we. She, you know, it's she was on the phone a lot about where are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Like I've got this idea. This was, you know, but I was. I went out of my way to to not be intimidated by her in person and i think i was uh a little unfair at a public level about you know about being flippant about what's it like to work with barbara streisand you know and and uh, uh i won't repeat that what i said it was very funny but i don't want to repeat it because yeah. it would just be getting more mileage out of it you sure know? so what i said was no <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, what it was was because uh, it was quite funny, and I, yeah, <laughs> it's a shame yeah, to let a good line yeah. go to waste. But, uh, uh, but, but it was you know. So it was it was uh, you know I. When, like when she asked me like what I needed to write, I said I need to have white wine at my fingertips wherever I sit in this house, and I need uh, cashews. And and the next time I came out there, they, she had bowls of cashews next to every chair. Wow! And a guy following me around with you know with a with a <laughs> red refreshing, and uh, I wasn't even a wine drinker. I don't know why I said that. You know, um, it just seemed right. Yeah. But I have to tell you, when I got sober, I mean, I had had said some really funny things about working with Barbara that were not very kind. And uh, the, one of the first things I did was I called her and made amends. And she was aware of you know, the 12 steps, and she appreciated that and all. You know, and I'm thrilled that in this new album that's called, you know, Barbara Streisand Evergreen, she put, uh, once again, put a new recording of Evergreen on it. But she also put a song that Kenny and I wrote with her called Answer Me that I really love. Mm-hmm. And uh, she talks a little bit about that in the in The, uh, the in new t- uh, memoir? In, in the book, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to the whole thing. It's 47 hours, and I can't wait. I'm very excited about that. Uh, Please let me know how it is. I will, and I'll, I'll, I'll excerpt uh, the portion about you and send it off. Because uh, apparently she extemporizes a little bit in it. She goes off page, and she uh, adds some things. But um, it, were you on set for that? Were you there on during the shooting? Almost never. I mean, there, I, there was one. I left at one point right when they started shooting. I let, went on tour with Olivia Newton-John. We took the Starship, and we were. But but one of our first stops. Wait, sorry for listeners who don't know, the Starship was originally Led Zeppelin's plane. Exactly. And then it became the uh, yeah. touring plane, right? It had exactly. a, a piano, or I mean, it had two bedrooms. It was a, a fireplace in in, uh, <laughs> in Olivia's bedroom. I mean, it was like just you know, it, it was not a real fireplace, but it was a fireplace. <laughs> it glowed in the dark, you know. Yeah. And there was a, a like a twenty five foot or, or longer bar, and and uh, <laughs> Olivia and I did did like about two months on the road in that. But one of the first stops we made was at uh, was in Arizona where they were shooting. Okay, and yeah. So it's like I'm walking on the I, I get off the plane and I'm walking along, and then like there's somebody goes by carrying a thing, and the next thing I know is there's wait a minute, is that, that's cat that's that's. Christopherson, wait a minute! What the hell? And, and I realized what we've done is we just sat right down in the in where they were going to be, sh- be shooting, you know. Because um, they did that live stuff actually yeah. live, right? But f- getting on the plane, uh-huh. I I called Barbara actually, and I called her, and she was I think she was shooting. I don't, I, I'm not sure if she was sh- was shooting the scene with with uh, with Chris. I think she was in probably in, in uh, when I called her probably in Arizona. It doesn't matter. But what I suggested to her is that we flip the first two lines. I because I wrote love fresh as the morning air, love soft as an easy chair, and I went. You know what? Well, it doesn't sing as love fresh as the morning air, love soft as an easy. Love's uh, soft as an easy chair. Love fresh as the morning. Morning sang better there. Yeah. So I called her and I said, "What if you?" I said, "We'll probably get laughed out of town, but what if you start the line with the line about the easy chair?" She went, "Love, you're right. Thanks. Click. I don't know if <laughs> I'm not sure that I think you know she was doing everything. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge, huge, and a monstrous success. Yeah, massive. Yeah. And that uh, reminds me of another line that you weren't sure about, uh, that uh, what I've got they used to call the blues. Oh, yeah, that was a fill line. Which then was mentioned to you by a hero of yours as something that they found exceptional. Well, the, the, the Johnny Mercer line. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, do you know about my my acceptance of the Johnny Mercer Award? No. In the Johnny Mercer Award, I talked about, I said, this may be a great place to, I think that for years I've been telling a story as the truth of that was something that I thought Johnny Mercer said to me. Oh, okay. Because what, and and, and I swear to God, I thought, I thought he did, <laughs> but, you know, but in, uh, Back in the seventies, I was at, at ASCAP, and I and uh, Rainy Days and Mondays had just come out, and I I ran into uh, at, at the re- the recording studio at A and M Records. I ran into Hank Shikala, who's a great engineer. Mm. He said, "Guess who's in in mixing room C?" I said, "Who?" He said, "Johnny Mercer." I went, "Oh Jesus, I oh I want I I'm no, I'm not going to come in there, but I, I really want to meet him. Does he drink coffee?" He said, "I would think so," you know. 
So I waited by the coffee pot for like an hour. Mm -hmm. And I'm just drinking coffee and waiting. And sure as hell, I see the door open. And here comes Johnny Mercer. And he walks up. And I've been waiting for the... the, This is one of the greatest lyricists in the world. You know, ever. Ever. Yeah. And I go, Mr. Mercer, I, I... Really, I want to introduce myself. I'm Paul Williams, and and I'm just a huge, huge student and fan and whatever I said. I don't remember what I said, you know. So it's, I'm lying if I said I said student, you know. <laughs> but he said, oh, "It's nice to meet you," and he pours himself a cup of coffee and goes back in. And I was, well, there you go. And then he stuck his head back out and he went. Paul Williams and I and I swore he said what I've got they used to call the blues that Paul Williams and I was like yeah that, <laughs> I, that's mine what I've got they used to call the blues and he got a weird little look on his face which I totally ignored for for probably 30 years or whatever or more, more than that 40 years but I've told the story about that where and I it was just an amazing bit of recognition from Johnny Mercer. Sure. And then 2 years ago, actually in 2019, but they had to po- postpone or 2020, they had to postpone it because of COVID. I was given the 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 Johnny Mercer award, which is if you you have to be already be a member of the Songwriter Hall of Fame to get that, mm-hmm. and it's referred to as the highest award that the solo Songwriter Hall of Fame gives. So I get up and I and I tell that story and I go. I have to tell you, I and I wanted to thank all these people, but this is the most important thing I can do right now. I want you to know. I think I've been telling this story about about Johnny Mercer for forty or some years, and I may be lying. <laughs> and I said I need I need to clean it up right now. The fact is, I thought he said, and I told this story. I thought he said what I've got. They used to call the blues that Paul Williams. And it may not have been what he said at all. It's what I heard. And I need to clean it up. And and, and it was just, it was the program in action. Mm-hmm. It was me making amends at a place where, I did it one other time. I did it, I did a, a show at the, with with Dinah Shore. We went, took the, the, I was host on her show, co-host for a couple of years, revolving co-host. And uh, at Betty Ford, they're doing a big event down there. I said that I was sober, and I wasn't. Wow. So from that stage, when I went back and I was sober, I said, you know, Mrs. Ford, I need to make an amends to you. I stood on this stage and told you I was sober and I was lying through my teeth. And it just, I mean, it, it, I mean, what an opportunity to yeah. go back to the scene of the crime right. and say, look at what a little shit I was. And, and <laughs> you know, just a lying little you know. <laughs> And also, like, sort of make a good thing out of something that potentially yeah, could be yeah. a lifetime touch of shame. Yeah, well, and I think what it, what it also is 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 it's you do something like that, and maybe you take that the the quote unquote stigma of of being an alcoholic, and you you file it down just a little bit. It's a lot better these days than it was forty years ago, or even you know when I got sober. It mm-hmm. was thirty three years it's been, and and there's a lot more understanding and appreciation, you know, because I mean. 
people that have, that know that everybody has somebody that's that's in trouble with drugs or alcohol or died from fentanyl and mm-hmm. and it's just it's a tsunami and it was at this moment that we took a brief break during which i took the opportunity to change out of my piazadora satin tour jacket into my beloved mickey mouse sweatshirt which is what we're talking about when we resume the discussion which is right now that satin jacket they're not that that breathable you know you had plenty of them i'm sure in the 70s and i was thinking like gee it's kind of warm and i thought sweatshirt that's the right that's the right move and it's a mickey shirt which of course reminds me of another icon oh look at that it's so funny i wasn't looking i was looking at the yeah this is i love this because it's like it's the scream (laughs) but it's animal it's like it's it's that that edge that I find is such a... A buzz. Uh, yeah. It's the irreverence. Yeah, it's the irreverence. It's totally the irreverence. You see, you would have you would have fit well at the round table with Benchley and Waldorf and... and uh, <laughs> Benchley and well, Waldorf. <laughs> Benchley and Waldo. Yeah, uh, Peter yeah, Benchley, his Benchley guest appearances on uh, on the yeah. Muppets, uh, which uh, it's funny because I didn't look at that because you know you're thinking about other things. You go, oh, is the camera yeah. on and stuff? And then I thought, well, you know what? Much like uh, other things that you talk about, and I saw a brilliant Ray Charles clip that's about. Oh yeah, a, oh that's good. Yeah, and I'll cut in. Show it. I'll yeah. cut in too. It's amazing I too because yeah. shooting on the 2K, I could do 4K, but it's so ungainly. Yeah. Uh, you cut in and you're like, wow, look at that. And you think about the advancements in tech. People could shoot movies on these things now. Um, it's great. It, it really is. Like the, it really is the democratization of media, which, of course, was not around when you started. And I'm a little fuzzy on the uh, chronology. I know there's Holy Mackerel. I know you were on A&M. What came first? Because you also had a writing deal. So that I'm a little fuzzy. And... Um, let me just add for the listeners and viewers that the first time your music got noticed was actually during a job where you were an actor. So it, I was acting yeah. in the chase with Marlon Brando. I mean, I had, uh, I worked, I think close to three months on a shooting night. It was a movie that starred Marlon Brando, Robert Redford, Jane Fonda, Robert Duvall, Not monster bad. cast. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was uh, directed by Arthur Penn mm. who had just done, uh, the Miracle Worker. Oh, wow. Okay. Won, I think won the Oscar for that. And so uh, it was shooting at night, and there were four teenagers in it. And I, you know, I was probably 22 at the time, maybe 23, and I was playing a 15 year old. Um, and oh, no, wait a minute. That was like, it was probably a little later than that. It was like 64, 65. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fr- the first picture I did was the loved one when I was like 22 and played a 13 year old. A wild uh, movie with Liberace and all uh, Shelley Winters, right? Sh- Jonathan Winters. Sorry. <laughs> J- yeah, Jonathan Winters playing two parts, and and we became. We, I mean, I, I followed him around like a puppy. <laughs> How I could loved you not? Him. We became. He was the other neighbor. There was in Montecito. It was Robert Mitchum and, and Jonathan Winters. So I was the normal guy on the block. What a what a you know? nexus of. Oh my uh... god! It was like you know. It was like the uh, 
the Bermuda Triangle of of just brilliance for these two guys. I was, I was thinking like Ghostbusters, you know, where we're like, well, right in the center yeah, here at, is where at this exact spot right here is where I I got my 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 property and all. But no, the chase was I was cast in this movie, and I think by the time it was shot. I had maybe two lines in it, but there were a lot of scenes where the kids would we'd drive up in this hot rod, and the four of us would jump out. Yeah, there's a big climactic scene where Robert Redford is hiding in a, in a junkyard that we've that we set fire to, and we're shooting these night scenes forever and ever and ever, and and. Uh, the guy that I was sharing a, a dressing room with had a beautiful guitar, Mark Seaton, and uh, who has since passed away. Has actually, uh, sadly, committed suicide as a very yeah. young man. Uh, but he had a great guitar, and it, he said, and I picked it up and, and and was looking at it, and he said, "Don't touch the guitar. It's a Martin." I went, "I didn't know they had names, you know." <laughs> Sorry, Martin. Uh, but I, you know, I was just starting to kind of wanted to make some music and all, and and so I bought a little guitar, and I was just learning chords, you know, and we're watching the scene, and uh, it's where Bubba is hiding in the in the ju the junkyard, and we're we've just set fire to it, and just for my own amusement, I'm sitting on the steps of this little motor tiny, you know, about the size of this couch motorhome. And I'm going, Bubba, 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 come out wherever you are, or we're going to come in and get you. Yes, we're going to come in and get you. And as the fates would have it, Robert Duvall is walking by. And uh, and he said, what is that? I said, it's, uh, it's a guitar. I just bought it. And he said, not the guitar. What were you just singing? Yeah. And I said, I, I, just, I don't know. I just made it up. He said, come with me. So I get up, he said, bring the guitar, okay. So he walks me over to Arthur Penn, the director, and he says, show him. I said, it's a guitar, I, I painted it, and I bought And he said, no, not the guitar. He said, you know, show him what you were just singing. I went, come out wherever you are. Oh, we're going to come in. And he went, I, he said, what is that? I said, I just, I just made it up. He went, come over here and stand by the by the the barbed wire and they light them up boys and they lit up all the fires he said sing it i sang it and then he put me up on the, the back of the of the uh the hot rod and sing it and it's in the movie yeah i mean it's like and it's like two years later two years because i'm quick two years later i start writing songs yeah and the what was the time or what was the chronology basically from that when you really started writing to getting uh the contracts almost, with a almost immediately like so it was like 65 maybe it was 64 65 when when uh when i was in the chase and then the, the movie comes out and that i mean i'm still not a songwriter around 67 like in the 66 67 i start messing around with songs and uh i i wind up getting a a publishing deal with white whale records They're the guys that do the turtles oh sure and and uh they signed me to a, like a seven year all of my all everything 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 for like 50 bucks a week i didn't even have an attorney look at it yeah and uh about five and so i write a bunch of songs that i can barely play on 
on a on a guitar, uh, and I go in and I record them. So they have them, and uh, they invite me in, and I'm and I've got a little girlfriend that's moved into my little tiny little apartment with me, and I'm like songwriter. And they say, you know what, uh, we're tearing up your contract. And they tore it up and they said, we don't think you have a future in the music business. <laughs> and, that's why uh, White Whale is such so a titan I, in the industry I, these oh, days. I mean, that's no is a gift. No is a <laughs> yeah. gift. Yeah. Because, okay, now I'm writing songs and the next thing I do is I get get hired as an improvisational actor on Mort Saul's local TV show. Oh, wow. I'm there, I meet a guy named Biff Rose. And Biff writes funny songs, and he plays me a funny song, and I say, I don't think it's funny. I think it's pretty. Mm. So I write lyrics to that song and a couple more. He goes to A&M, gets a record uh, publishing deal at, at A&M, and then says, you know, a couple of these I wrote with another guy, and they said, well, we want to meet him. They were looking for a lyricist for Roger Nichols. Oh, there wow. you have, in about three sentences, how I got in the music business. And this goes back to some something uh, something that you've referenced before, not just sort of being present and letting things happen, but when you don't get the thing that you think you want, you get what you need. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. this is The Rock is a great example. He wanted to be a pro wrestler. Uh, he had some injury. It didn't work out. Now he's one of the biggest sure. movie stars there is. So I think that's a great lesson yeah. to hear continually too, because it happens in all streams of life. The first song that, that got recorded, I had actually two recorded the same day, the first two songs. One was a song that I wrote with Roger Nichols, because this was this amazing guy that wrote some music note for note, and he wanted somebody to write lyrics note for note. Oh, sure. I wound up being that guy. The first thing we wrote was called It's Hard to Say Goodbye, and Claudine Langer recorded it. Oh, wow. She was Andy Williams' wife, you know. and mm. uh, So anyway, but the same day... Uh, the B-side of Tiptoe Through the Tulip by Tiny Tim came out with the song that I wrote with with Biff called Fill Your Heart. I'm very familiar with the David Bowie version. The David Bowie, again, I'm going, you know, I love Tiny's a Sweetheart, and that's a, a, an amazing album Richard made. But I'm like, I'm white light and black leather. I'm rock and roll. I want to. No, but we get a lot of airplay, and it's, you know, it's a huge, monstrous, huge, monstrous hit. Yeah. And, um, but then again, it's like the, le it, like, you could not connect the dots to where I wind up having the first outside song that David Boy ever recorded. Right. And it's just like, oh, God, thank you. As we say, God, thank you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Was God something that you or someone or some being a higher power, rather, anything that you considered before um, sobriety? Was were you at all religious before that? I used to go to because I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade, and I used to go to I went to to church with somebody when I was about eight, and and uh, I went forward and gave my my myself to Christ. And got a lot of attention, so I did that wherever we moved. <laughs> that was like my first theater. But I, but I always felt, you know, I. Before I got sober, I had I had been exposed to, the Church of Religious Science, mm -hmm. you know, and Ernest Holmes, and then in recovery, uh, was made aware of Emmett Fox, and Emmett Fox. I mean, the the whole concept of, of that massive movement, which was also an important relationship between Emmett Fox and Bill Wilson, 
Oh, right. Okay. Uh, Emmett Fox was, is as part of the you know the the Church of Religious Science, which is basically that thoughts become things. What mm. we dwell on, we create. That there is this, you know, just as I say I'm powerless over alcohol, the fact is what I dwell on, if I think I'm not going to get that job, shit, I'm not, I'm not going to get that. Why would I even try? I'm not going to get that job. That's a prayer. That's oh. the universe going. That evidently is what he wants because that's what he's thinking about. Boom. Uh, he talks about Golden Key and the, 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 uh, the uh, situation where if you're looking at a problem, if you imagine God where that problem is, that the Inuit uh, are a classic example of, of the practice of that principle, which is if they saw two sled dogs fighting, they would picture God where the dogs were and the dogs would stop fighting. Oh, wow. You know, so, so for me, I, back in the 70s, I mean, long, long before I'd earned my stripes as an alcoholic, I used to say to my manager, I'd go, do you feel it? And he'd go, well, do you feel what? And I'd go, there's something fabulous coming. I mean, can you feel it? And and I would feel it. I, I I would feel it more than I would think it. I would and I would just I would almost create that. Just going, yeah. can you feel it? And he and eventually he was like, no, but if you can, I know what's coming. And again and again and again, the phone would ring, and it'd be just a great job. It's Jim Henson wants you to come over and do this, or or Streisand or all these things. Or that, Alan that, Parker. What's that? Or Alan Parker. Or Alan Parker for for Bugsy Malone, exactly. Could we talk? So, a, I'd love to talk. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, 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 no. That's good. You know, cut me off. It's, <laughs> it's, it's actually one of the few ways you can always get something in there. It's like, <laughs> I do blither on, you know. Well, it's fat. No, what you say is uh, fascinating stuff, and it's all very worthwhile. But I really would like to uh, get into Bugsy Malone because it's such an outside kind of thing and yeah. it was his first feature film after a long career a uh, very successful one as a commercial director with sure. ridley scott's company you know it's it started out as a bedtime story he told his kids is <laughs> how it began he would every night he'd put them in bed and he'd say okay and they'd say dad we want to hear stories about P bugsy and he'd go okay well bugsy was you know, he was going to be a boxer, but he, he uh, you know, so and he'd just make up the story. Yeah. And eventually got enough to where he, he got the idea for, you know, for doing a, a basically a John Garfield kind of, you know, uh, typical Warner Brothers gangster movie. Yeah. With kids. And, you know, he, he reached out, uh, he came to see me, and I was playing Vegas. And showed me basically the drawings. His idea was that this, that this special world, these, everything was built to their size. And it was like it could have been cast with, with adults in like just the, the traditional, you know, uh, stereotypical roles of the gangsters and the malls and sure. all. Only the difference was that the machine guns that were just being developed were called splurge guns and they shot cream pie. <laughs> and, uh, the cars, they, they, they would pedal, but they made the sounds of the engine. Yeah. Uh, so so it was just, I, I mean, he showed me the drawings, and I was just, told, I mean, I was, it looked like, it looked like, the, you know, the, 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 the designer sketches for a John Garfield movie oh, or sure. a Jimmy Cagney movie. Yeah. And uh, 
I, and this, you know, I've I've always approached writing songs for uh, for a, a movie or a play or anything, as as I do, as like acting, you know, what's the inner life of the character like? Yeah. You know, so, the, you know, so to me it was like an acting job. I was all these all these different characters, and I very quickly wrote the songs. The only thing that that I'm really regretful about is that Jodie Foster. Is the most amazing actress. I mean, if you haven't seen, you know, her latest movie, it's amazing. But everything she's done has been so brilliant. And I put somebody else's voice in her mouth when she sang, and I, I, I feel bad about it. But we kind of had to do it. You know, we didn't know which kids could sing and which ones couldn't. Sure. They could dance. They could act. But to sing and have them all be in the right keys and everything, we, I did it with adult voices. So. I became the voice of Fizzy and, yeah. and Archie Hahn from, from Phantom, uh, you know, right. the Juicy Fruits and Phantom, became the voice of of uh, Bugsy. Uh, well, he, yeah, he was the voice of Bugsy. He was also the voice of uh, Sam. Of uh, no, he was the voice of of uh, the piano KG player. Joe. Oh, so okay. you want to be a boxer in the Golden Ring, you know? So. But yeah, it was just an amazing. And then, then Mickey Dolan said, "This is going to make a great, a great play," and he, you know, he uh, adapted it to the stage, and and it ran for a year in the West End of London. Every kid growing up in London, in England, and in Australia, and in a lot of places around the world these days, does Bugsy Malone. It's, they know it the way that Americans know Greece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How how do you know this? <laughs> well, besides being a big fan of your work and, and being that way since, uh, well, obviously when I was a very little kid, the Muppet movie and not knowing things about songwriters, but I didn't, I grew to know that stuff very quickly. Wow. And then on a UHF uh, broadcast, the Phantom of the Paradise, I was very young. I probably maybe eight, nine, but wow. I, I was already watching other. You're in L.A., right? No, I have, grew up in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. Yes. But uh, they were showing it all the time. Yeah, and I saw it real late at night because I've always had sleeping problems. So the bipolar diagnosis helped explain that a little. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I would always also wow. for me, I didn't have the easiest childhood at school, and I had weight issues and various issues, and. Uh, music were you and heavy or skinny I was or? I was heavy yeah and I still have issues with that you know like gained a little over the holidays look at myself in the monitor and go oh no, <laughs> yeah, no. but I know it's a thing go ahead sorry and you you've also uh oh, dealt yeah. with that when I quit drinking well actually I was a little down when I quit drinking but right before that I weighed at my peak 187 I weigh 130 now you know yeah and uh, you uh, stick to a fitness regimen. Actually, I'll get back to that in a second. I really wanted to say that film and uh, music were my oasis of uh, peace, yeah. comfort, inspiration, and everything else. Like I don't have, there's a lot of memories or time in childhood that I don't really remember, but I do remember, I still remember seeing you in Phantom of the Paradise when you walk into the scene with the mirrors and when Winslow comes yeah. up and, and grabs you and trust me and all that. Yeah. And I just remember being fascinated because like you said before, it, the set was built to scale and I was just like, who is this? And, yeah. and from he's, there, he's this little guy. You know? Well, yeah, but also like uh, uh, grabbed by the sinister, but knowingly, um, you know, like I could, I got that stuff when I was a kid and I love that stuff. Like yeah. you love villains, like in Tommy, you know, the, the, the uh, uncle and the cousin, or the yeah. vermin, but the performance actually, Paul Nicholas, 
who, another guy that at that age, I said, who is this? Covered your song Sunday and did a phenomenal yeah. job of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He did a great version. It's kind of a disco version of Sunday. Wow. Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's it's marvelous. Please. And he's a big, huge star of, uh, of some screen, but television and theater in England. But over here, you'd have to be someone who's obsessed with various people you see on TV when you're a child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's why I, I've always been an Anglophile. And loving Bugsy Malone, again, I saw not on UHF, but on Frank Evruch's uh, Channel 7 program, for anyone wow. in Massachusetts who is uh, a familiar... Um, and I was galvanized because I thought, what is this? I, I knew who Scott Baio was. Uh, yeah. I, I probably knew who Jodie Foster was by that point, but maybe not. And I just loved it. I, you know, and, and then later on when I realized, and it wasn't that long after, maybe I was 12, at some time, double digits, but early, that oh, the same guy who did that did this. Was this, yeah. And then it was a process of uh, acquiring your records because for, for a while uh, they weren't available on CD here. I ended up buying a, some Japanese imports. For anyone listening uh, that wants to get some CDs, though that they seem outmoded, go to Amazon.uk, and I was able to get uh, Ordinary Fool and some other stuff. Wow. For yeah, and and whereas the record store, the Japanese imports would be, you know. Yeah. And, and then of course, anytime I came across, so I want to show this to to listeners. This is where you can get uh, Waking Up Alone. I, mean, I have this on vinyl too, but I couldn't uh. find it. <laughs> well, I have to say a word about Michael James Jackson because I, when I signed it with with A and M, eventually, I was signed also as a as a, a recording artist. Um, but the first the first album that I did was Richard Perry produced for the group I put together called The Holy Miracle. Yeah, and when i you know the 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 group broke up by the time the album came out <laughs> my brother was in the group with me and all and and it was a, a great experience working with richard but i became friends with michael james jackson and michael james jackson produced the old fashioned love song album which was and i got to tell you he was like he said i don't want anything between you and the song and the listener I don't want a lot of strings. I don't want a lot of orchestration. I don't want a lot of, you know, double tracking, a lot of, a stuff lot of like camouflage. That. Yeah. I said, I happen to love camouflage. <laughs> you know? He said, yeah, but you don't need it. He said, you know, and uh, I didn't love the way I sounded, uh, especially, in, you know, in, in in those those years. I just, you know, it was like, you know, Bill Medley and I were born the same day in the same year. Oh, wow. And that's why we look so much alike. But Bill Medley gets this, <laughs> the, I mean, it's, I, I always joke that, you know, proof that, that God has a sense of humor. Bill gets to go, you never close your <laughs> eyes anymore. And I go, day after day, I must face a world of strangers. And it's just, but as the, as the years have passed and all, I, I you know, I, you know, I, uh, I, I like singing. I love it. I, I don't sing much anymore because my hearing is so bad. I got to yeah. see you, though, yeah. uh, thankfully, at, um, you know, the legendary place I can't remember so the good. name of. Uh, the, you did a New York residency where Elaine Stritch used to. Oh, yeah, yeah, at the, Car at the Carlisle. The Carlisle. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that was great fun. That was fantastic. That and was... you did my request. Uh, there was a loud table of drinkers in front of us, which I thought was wildly ironic, but, uh, they were a little, uh, making noise. And then you said something like, um, you said something very nice to them to sort of yeah. quiet them down. But then you said, does anyone have any requests? And, uh, first I yelled flash because I love that, but also, uh, waking up alone and you did it. And I was oh, quite, cool. quite moved by that. Yeah.
Well, that's well, that means a lot, Craig. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. That, that's it's wonderful to be able to tell you that. Yeah, you know what I'm I mean. I'm loving it. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, you've always been so generous, I and mean, this, you know, this whole thing with with the screening of of Phantom of the Paradise and your your coverage of that, and it just, you know, and we hooked up online, and and it's just, you know, it's like you, you feel like there's not a word yet for old friends who just met, you know, but turns out we met a. a, a 10 years ago or something. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a beautiful thing, and I'm very thankful and full of gratitude yeah, uh, for that. Me Thank too. you. Thank you. And I love posting your, the Thursday thing. Every, I try to do it every Thursday, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's a Thursday. It's so funny because little girls used to come up to me and they go... Would you say Thursday? I go, do what? Say Thursday. Go, oh, yeah, Thursday. Today is Thursday. And you go, oh. Yeah, those uh, screenings, to be able to see um, an archive print of that, which I've been able to do three times at uh, New Beverly, uh, which is wonderful, Tarantino's Theater. So, Oh, yeah. yeah, how about that? You know, And, you know, it's funny because, like, Ed, Edgar Wright is a big fan of, of Phantom and, and of it. Edgar Wright, you know, fan of, you know, I, I tell the, the Phantom fans like in Winnipeg. You know, oh, yeah. Huge, huge fans of the. That's we're where doing I got. The, we're sorry, doing that's the 50th. Not, sorry, that's where I got Garrett Graham and um, William Finley's autograph. Yeah, exactly. One of the, the Am first I on one. there? Yeah. That's, uh, he signed it the Phantom uh, as well. Go. And then if I had a silver marker, I would ask you to sign. Uh, I'm not a big autograph guy, but. You um, know, Phantom Palooza is, is in November. We're going to go back up to Winnipeg. I keep telling all the fans up there, don't you realize the reason I have a career today is because <laughs> you guys kept this movie alive. <laughs> and all the guys that like, you know, Edgar Wright and, and, and the like. Um, well, Daft Quentin, Punk now, as Quentin well. hasn't hasn't used me yet. I mean, I, come on, Quentin. Yeah, but Roger Avery has. So What's they, that? Uh, Roger Avery is co-writer for Pulp Fiction. Oh, that's right. Rules of Attraction. That's right. That's uh, right. A terrific performance. Which, knowing your history, it's it's uh, fun mm -hmm. that you're a doctor saying that guy's uh, or you you're telling yeah. him, yeah, you're gonna die. You, you yeah. took too much drugs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's very yeah. funny. You um, wind up on the back page, and then you know. <laughs> All, all improvised, all oh, of that. And of course, that's right, Edgar Wright. And your moment in Baby Driver is like is not. It's kind of a turning point, and it's also so funny in a very tense situation. And it's a. It's just the the the, the tone of it is amazing. And I won't be in the sequel if there is one because I get blown away by Jamie Foxx. You know, <laughs> you know alas, you know, yeah. but a, yeah, a perfect, a perfect. I moment. love acting though, and and I and I've you know, I mean, I got to work with some great directors. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the doors. You know, with that's you know, right. You yeah, know, so that's right. What was that like working with Oliver Stone? Well, he was, you know, he was very, you know, it was it was weird. Uh, I went down to audition. And he wasn't, and there was just a camera set up, and, and just somebody said, you know, like, go and just go talking to the, uh, you know. So I just did, like, a Truman Capote thing. I went, like, you know, well, you're not here, are you? They're, you know, I'm so sorry because I, the fact is I'm slightly offended. And there's something you should realize right now is that you're just a prick. It's obvious or something. You know, I don't, I don't know what I said. Yeah. But I did basically Truman Capote. And so he then called. He said, "I want you to do do the 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 press agent of mm. uh, of the you know of uh, Jim Morrison and, and the Doors, and and basically do that. Do you know? And he you know, it's I was doing 
I was doing Truman, you know, so <laughs> basically. What's well, a good fallback? If you're not sure what to do, do yeah, Truman, when, right? Yeah, when you don't know what to do, you just go ahead and do that. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's going to make a lot of sense eventually, you know. And other directors, of course, the Palma, and you had quite a close working relationship with that you were essentially really collaborating. It wasn't just like you were doing something. And then, of course, uh, who we were going to mention before when we talked about our sweatshirts, Jim Henson. Oh, yeah. Well... Well, you know, Amadotto's Jug Man Christmas just closed at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago. Uh, opened in 2020 in New York to the best reviews ever. I mean, Jim had to be just going, oh, my God. The one thing he really wanted was uh, that, that he didn't get was a, a, a like a, a, a big stage show, you know, oh, a, sure. a, a Broadway show. And we opened to just the best reviews. I mean, the Times was, you couldn't, I mean, I couldn't have written a better review. And the, it's an amazing company, a beautiful script, an adaptation of, of the first thing I did with, with Jim, which Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I mean, I, I mean, a fan all the way back to the Ed Sullivan show before I knew they were Muppets when they were slinkies going, man, man, whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. And on the road, you know, the one thing that was a constant element for myself and my, my my band was Sesame Street. Right, okay. I mean, it's like that's where we learned which fork to use. It was like, you know. <laughs> it's exactly, helpful for rock exactly. bands Exactly, we learned to count yeah. and spell, you know. <laughs> so, but, but I love the humor. I love the fact that he never wrote down to kids. He was just amazing. And uh, so I went over and did the the first season of The Muppet Show, and he asked me, he said, there's this wonderful children's book, you know, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and, and uh, I'd, I'd love for you to take a look at the script. Jerry Jewell was writing a script, and we're going to do it as a one-hour special for, for Canadian television, but mm -hmm. also for HBO. Uh, and it was the first thing, and, and it was just an amazing fit. And then he asked me to do the Muppet movie, which really, really surprised me. I mean, it was just... It was just the greatest gift in the world, and and the the example that I give of what it was like to work with Jim is is simply this: I had just bought a house in the Hollywood Hills, so we rehearsed up there. We met. It was a, I think it was the first time I ever had anybody up to the house was Jim and Jerry Jewell, <laughs> Frank Oz, yeah. Uh, and then we all sat around talking about what basically it was a road picture, how they all get together, whatever, and some of the scenes and all. It was the script script was was beginning to come together. And I walked Jim to, the, to his car, and on the way to the car, and I, I just said, you know, we're, this is a big deal, and we're not going to, you know, I said I wanted Kenny Asher to, to do it with me, and which he agreed to. Again, smartest thing I ever did. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, we're not going to surprise We'll let you hear the songs while we're working on them to make sure we're headed in the right direction. And he went, oh, Paul, that's not necessary. Yeah, he says, I'll hear him in the studio. And that was right after A Star is Born. So that was a very, it was the two extremes of, one was very, very hands-on, and yeah. one was, he just, he just trusted his choices. And he, he, he allowed, in his way, uh, this creative freedom to just, you know, like, show me. Yeah. And if it wasn't, if, if he didn't get it, he didn't. And he didn't say no. He just went, hmm. Oh, <laughs> well, well, yeah. Which he only did once. Which was uh, Kenny and I wrote the song. I'm going to go back there someday. Oh yeah. That was not. There was no scene for the. That was not listed in the script. Oh wow. You know. So we wrote this song about this landlocked bird that's you know looking at the sky and the desert. And, 
And he was like, oh, oh, oh wow. But obviously, it just in his mind, it was like, it was very kind of a spiritual, ethereal, you know, spiritual kind of a song. And, and uh, what was great is about three days later, he came back and he said, what if at the state fair scene, Gonzo buys a bunch of helium balloons for his girlfriend, Camilla, and he, this landlocked bird gets to experience flight. And it and he and it's a spiritual awakening for him. Yeah. I mean, we didn't use those terms because I hadn't had mine yet. <laughs> but but the, it, that was the basic deal. Is all of a sudden he experiences flight and he knows that's what he's supposed to be doing. He's a bird. And I think we're all landlocked birds. I think you're a landlocked bird, Craig. I think I am too. That's lovely. I, think I, I would agree. At home are landlocked birds. And, and one of the magic, many magic things about the Muppet movie and your other writing is it speaks to those things. I know you, as you mentioned before, used to joke about codependent anthems, which I think is a great line, but uh, those songs also don't speak uh, down to kids. So the movie doesn't speak down to kids and that helps to bolster their intelligence because it's there anyway. They get it. They understand it as I did, as uh, millions and millions of other kids did. And you can still watch it as an adult. Like I'm looking forward to showing uh, my son, the Muppet movie when, when oh, he's I love able that. to. I love that. And I think what's cool about it is that is that it's it's almost like looking at a beautiful house or a, a bit of architecture from different angles. You love it at first from once, and then you walk around, or you know, it's and it's so a kid of you know of eight or nine can enjoy the the Muppet movie on on one level, and uh, and then you know as as an adult you can listen to. Uh, uh, Aurora Borealis shining out <laughs> yeah, I was of just Dallas. Thinking, Can I swear you to picture God, that? You I was know? just thinking about that because uh, my dance night, Video Drum Discotheque, I liked to pair songs that seemed incongruous but actually worked well together. So I, I, and I played videos too. So I cut the movie scene to the album track and uh, did um, Moving Right Along. And everyone went <laughs> fucking crazy because oh, you know because everyone is as a kid inside still. Oh, how and, wonderful! Yeah, and it it's a dance song. It's a dance number. So, and I would also play "Wig in a Box" from Hedvig, and um, I, I, was, oh, I, I, I lost my train of thought there. But oh well, and and Jim, from what I understand, was a very gentle spirit. But at the same time, with that spirit, uh, showed that you could run an in- massive organization that oh, was yeah. very complicated. So, sorry, the mic. I mean, when you think about it, sorry, the A&M Records, and, which was... Sorry, oh, see, I keep doing That's I, okay. Yeah. That's okay. It means we're engaged in a conversation. Yeah. I do that also with my car when I'm... And with my phone in the car when I'm driving because <laughs> I, you know, I'll hold the phone up here and I'll start talking to Mariana or whoever I'm talking with. And then I get to... <laughs> so, so I'm still doing it. You I'm know, a big but, hand, talk with my hands guy too. So yeah, I understand. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've lost my train of thought. That's okay. So, Jim. You know, if you have a conversation and you don't lose your train of thought a couple of times, must be a really boring conversation. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah and that's always what I uh, go to. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really a, a lovely gift to be able to do chats like this. How often do you get to sit with someone and actually just talk? straight through yeah. for a while and yeah. as we get older too it doesn't happen as often yeah and we were and we were talking about jim as a gentle spirit guiding this huge organization but as we were talking about directors i have to ask about the process of working on ishtar uh, which i have to say lest that sound like i'm um, denigrating it while i think the plot gets a little too in the way uh, after a while the first 30 minutes it's one of the best movies i've ever seen 
and your songs, the deliberately bad songs for was it Warren and Cl- something in Clark, Rogers and Clark, I think. Exactly, an act <laughs> again, an acting job, you know. Right. I wrote, I wrote, I think maybe fifty songs for the thirty that there are bits and pieces of. And Elaine made said, "I don't want you to. I want you to write the whole song." Yeah. And I don't want you to sing it to me because when you sing it, it sounds like a song. I want you to <laughs> teach it to Warren and Dustin. Yeah. And have them sing it and play it for you know. So I, I we got away with. I had a, a piano player that was p- part of my band that, that a guy named Doug Walters, very a lot of patience, <laughs> and uh, I would write songs and he would teach them to to Dustin and and Warren. Yeah. And they would sing them to her, and she'd be like. And uh, I would go, give me some direction. What what do you want? She, and she was like that with actors. She'd do fifty takes or you know thirty takes of. She would outdo and, Warren. She would out Beatty Warren Beatty. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and but but uh, she what she would always say is, "I'll know it when I see it." Yeah. Or in my case, I'll know it when I hear it. And I'm like trying to write some, and I, but I don't. I, you know, anybody can write bad songs. You know, you know, my foot's on fire. I die, you know, like you know, my sister's for hire. My life is totally <laughs> fucked. Whatever. Uh, but to write something that's believable and bad, where these two guys are just have different backgrounds, sort of for me to think of it like I'm Chuck and then I'm Lyle, and and they just don't match together. So. What finally happened is I sang her a song called uh, That a Lawnmower Can Do All That. <laughs> I wrote a song called That a Lawnmower Can Do All That. Uh, and I got to the bridge of it, and it was you know, really like, so I can see it was a, a bridge. Of, uh, I can see her standing and talking. The first, the first part of the song is that Saturday morning, the sound of a lawnmower touches my soul. Uh, uh, for some of my memories, the memories of Willa and me, that a lawnmower can do all that, <laughs> that a lawnmower can do all that, that a lawnmower can do all that. It's amazing. And then I sang her the bridge. I can see her standing in the backyard of my mind. She cracks her knuckles and the scab that's on her knee won't go away. <laughs> I can see the woman waiting in her eyes, and I can see the love, but I can't see the Brooklyn Dodgers in L.A. She said, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want. And it was like uh, we were off and running. And uh, it was just one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. Yeah. And I was in Morocco, or I, I spent almost a year in the Waldorf uh, uh, Astoria in in. New York, you know, writing songs, writing songs, writing songs, playing them. It was, it was, you know, and oddly enough, the New York Times re-reviewed it recently. Oh, wow. Beautifully and very lovingly. But most people say kind of the, the same thing as what you're talking about, is that, you know, uh, the stuff in the desert and the, you know, with the, with the conflict and all, in some ways wasn't funny. I thought it was one of the funniest scripts I ever read in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh I th- you know the the blind camel scene that is, is very funny, uh, and I do uh, love is, the whole movie. But the, yeah. the the first thirty minutes is so the pitch of the it's so funny. Uh, also, as a, a a musician and and all that stuff, like to kn- knowing like how specific to those guys that bad songwriting is and who want to be Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, and, but yet they have that almost like people celebrate Tom, Tommy Wiseau, the the um, disaster artist film, yeah. and all that. These guys, this is their dream. 
So it works on two levels. It's funny because you kind of care about these guys and they're writing amazingly bad songs, but they're amazingly bad. (laughs) (laughs) They, you know, they, uh, God, there's one that's, uh, Hot when fudge you, covered love. No. When how about when you can see a rose? You know, no. When you can smell a rose. No, wait. When you when you can hear a rose. <laughs> when you can smell a waterfall. Yeah. When you can taste the pride in Dallas <laughs> and lose your taste for malice. When everybody gets a fair shake and it's nobody's turn in the barrel. That's when the morning is going to change your name to Carol. I mean, I mean, I had so much fun, you know. Now, do demos of all those 50 songs exist? Well, beyond that. Michael James Jackson and I co-produced, I mean, which means I was there and he produced, <laughs> produced a full rock and roll version of all that stuff Wow! to be released as their, I mean, it's at the very end you see that the 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 best of... of, of uh, Rogers and Clark? Exactly, Rogers and Clark uh, in in that one shot in the, in the store window. So we did this. I mean, we're talking about this, the best player, Waddy Waddell, and, and you know, uh, great rock and roll musicians, uh, and did the whole album. And, I mean, comped vocals and background. I mean, and just hardcore rock and roll. Nam, I'm wondering if I give a damn. Uh, I don't care. Uh, whatever. It was it was great, and it just got shelved because when the reviews started coming in, Warren was like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh," wow. and we may have lost it all, and uh, with the oh, fire. No, in yeah. the Universal. Yeah. Vol- oh, yeah. that's that is really sad because yeah. uh, with the critical reappraisal of it and the cult following that it's had probably since the oh, beginning. Yeah, now it's like it's hip. Yeah, I got to see that at New Beverly as well. And that was a thrill. They did a Elaine May retrospective. And I said, that's the first thing I want to go see Yeah, in that. And so it was great to see, you know, Dustin's uh, tasteful bongo playing uh, in that. I, I've got to try to find, uh, I know that there are mixes. I, I think, you know, Michael passed away a couple of years ago from COVID. Uh, oh, that's terrible. About a year ago. And, uh you know, but but I think that he you know may have some of the the mixes and all, or and that and I can ask his his lady. Uh, but just the nicest, sweetest man in the world, and he was just and I was just a mess. By the time you know we were over in in Morocco, I was. <laughs> now I want to get uh, into that further, but I got to ask um, how. <laughs> Easy was it to score drugs in Morocco? Oh, I didn't do drugs in Morocco. Oh, okay, okay, I did not. I but I drank oh, and sure. I drank and I drank and I drank and I yeah. fell backwards into uh, tipping the band at a at a supper club. The last night I was in Morocco, I was told that the way you tip the band is you put the money in the in the cleavage of the belly dancer. Okay. And evidently that's how to make the band really hate you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the most disgusting thing that a freedom for me to be that aggressive to actually do that. But I walked up and did that and I was wearing cowboy boots and I walked away backwards kind of bowing of going, oh, this was such a rude thing to do. And there was a, a fountain with the edges of it about 
that high off the maybe 18 inches off the the ground with live sea turtles in it and a yeah. statue of Neptune with his trident and I went over backwards into the the fountain hit my head on the trident which immediately cut a big Y in the back of my head that exploded oh no fell into the water where I'm told that a, a turtle bit my ear <laughs> they pulled me out of there I I you know I remember I don't remember being pulled out of the water. I, re- I was out cold for I don't know how long. In the car being raced to the hospital as the ambulance that was coming to get me went by the other way. I came out, I came to long enough to go back to sleep. And then I woke up with somebody holding me down while they sewed up the back of my head. Wow. Uh, so that was my memento of... of <laughs> Of how much I drank, and and that was in, in ni- that was nineteen eighty six six I think, well eighty six when when we oh so eighty five uh, when you were there I think eighty six I think didn't it come out a little later than that a, it might have been eighty seven yeah. yeah but in that in that range so about I had three my, to four I actually years had my last drink September twenty first nineteen eighty nine I celebrate March fifteenth because on March fourteenth I took a Valium. And I and I argued with myself for a long time about you know I used to have a prescription for it, that was not a slip. And then I went, yes, it was, you ass, you know. So I changed my date. But I had my last drink in September of 1989, and as bad as it got, from was just about from from Ishtar to. To uh, Oklahoma City. Oh, okay. From, that was that's, about that's it. That's a journey that's from Ishtar that. to Oklahoma yeah, City. From Ishtar is, to Oklahoma City was pretty scary. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Was there much uh, in the way of songwriting? I know you were on tour. Um, actually, and that makes me wonder what touring was like for you at that point. And I was not touring much at that point. I was, not, you know, the phone was not ringing. The career when I got sober, the career I thought I had. Had been gone about ten years. I see. Yeah. And a classic story is that Tracy Jackson, my co-writer and friend of of gratitude and trust, you know, wanted me to be a regular on a, on a series that she had sold. And uh, she went to the studio and she said, "Paul's Paul Williams is perfect for this." And they said, "You know what? If you get Paul Williams, you're going to have to back up the uh, back up the truck of full of cocaine because we won't touch him." Wow. So okay. that's where that's where I was when I was given this amazing gift, and with uh, with uh, the last thirty three years, I just couldn't have planned any of it, and uh, and I got really good at surrendering to the moment and seeing what the big amigo had in store for me. And I've been given so many opportunities, not only to to write, you know, and uh, and act. You know, but also to you know, I have a, a long relationship with ASCAP. Mm, that you're is the president of ASCAP, president right? and chairman of the board. I, it is my, I have a, I have a day job and uh, <laughs> a very important one, particularly in the days well, of streaming. And you know what? And... I'm, a, I'm a pretty good hood ornament, <laughs> but there's also an engine of just this most amazing staff, uh, a CEO Beth Matthews, who is just stunning, uh, has managed to to. Really, in in a with all the challenges that we've had in the world of streaming and the like, everything from the Napster at a certain point, it just where it went from like stealing to just such devaluation of music. But the work that has been done at ASCAP and by the whole music community in so many ways 
and and really fighting and that's the best part of my job is to is to you know be an advocate for songwriters in mm-hmm. in DC and and uh we we are doing much 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 better as and it's going to keep getting better because uh you know well with you as the head of the organization as well as a songwriter and a musician and also uh, a very uh, determined, passionate advocate in general for people that need help, for others to uh, see the light, if you will, yeah. for others to uh, yeah. reclaim themselves. In 1977, the first real stab at, at advocacy for me beyond being against the war in Vietnam was when Anita Bryant took out a, a, a had this whole insane uh, uh, belief that that members of the gay community, the LGBTQ plus community, should not be teaching in our schools. And I took out a full-page ad in Variety that said, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Williams, in response to Anita Bryant's crusade, have stopped drinking dot, 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 screwdrivers. She was the spokesperson for Florida Orange Juice. Yeah. And uh, I just felt it was a human rights issue, and it made no sense. And uh, are you telling me that my kids can't? Can't read Rambo's poetry and, and because he was gay. Wait, 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 wait. We need to talk. You know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there are certain things that, and in th- these days, I have to tell you that that the big fight is probably going to be uh, next up and is is artificial intelligence and uh, making sure that while that is probably going to be fantastic for medicine right. and coming up with cures for cancer and everything else. Uh, you can't just randomly use all of our music, our songs, our culture, yeah, and train your computers and then just have it spit out a version thereof. So that's a big fight, and I think it's a fight that we're going to do well on. I, well, yeah, I think so, because now is the time, right, to put restrictions in place. My friend Gala said that the biggest worry for her, and I hadn't thought about this, is that in the way that calculators, we don't do math, uh, a lot of kids growing up may not sort of pursue the certain aspects of the creative yeah. life that yeah. make it worthwhile. There's something that happens between the blank piece of paper and the ceiling you're looking for the words on that is uh, opens your own soul and you find that you have, in fact, certain... There, there, there are bits and pieces of magic drifting through your being that you can maybe find something that's true about yourself to share with another human being, and that's worth trying and protecting. Uh, there are so many, 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 many things that I would uh, probably continue to ask you about, but, of course, we've been going about two hours, and it's been just one of the most wonderful conversations I could have hoped to have, and... I knew it would be that way, and to actually experience it is a true uh, delight. And before we go, though, I have to tell you that Rainbow Connection is the song that Ada and I sing to our son every night. And now she's in London right now, but she sings it to him every night, and we sing it together. Uh, And before we knew that we were having a child... She had visited me and because we met online during the pandemic. So that's a whole story. But uh, when we were going to go to the airport, you know, of course, we're crying and everything. And I said, hold on a minute. And I put the stereo on and played Rainbow Connection and we slow danced. And it was just so that's our song. Oh, yeah. That's what I call a heart payment. That's when somebody says that, that you have been a piece of our life 
and it makes my life a little bigger and 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 the gratitude needle just goes like that that i just you know that i had these amazing opportunities and you know i just i i i want you to know that that there's a part of me that as i say thank you to you i mean i just want to line up kenny and jimmy and, and uh, they're just you know yeah uh, i have had th these this remarkable accident that has been my life has uh, <laughs> i've just it's a really lucky lucky little guy sitting across from you well, and I'm so grateful, and, and I love doing this. And you know what? We can do it again. I would know? love that. I would love that. You know? Absolutely. So much to talk about. Paul, thank you again. Love you, and uh, talk love, to you again soon. Love you already. Treat yourself right, and head on over to patreon.com slash craigandfriends. Look at the reward tiers, see which one jumps out at you that you desire the most, and then just go for it. Grab life by the suspenders and pull at patreon.com slash craigandfriends.